heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Powerful words. Thank you, worship team, for uh, singing this morning and leading us in that time of worship. We sang songs that were written and can be traced back to the fourth century, and we sang some songs that are much more recent than that. And it connects us both to who we are in Christ and everything that happened thousands of years ago, but it also connects us to right here and right now and the call that we have to make disciples and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and to live the life of Christ, to allow him to live his life through us. So thank you so much for that, uh, worship team. Um, So cool this morning. Uh, This morning we move into the last major section of Peter's letter to the scattered church. Peter has painted a picture of of a life worth enduring, a Jesus worth following, and a persecution worth enduring. A life worth living, a Jesus worth following, and a persecution worth enduring. Kind of the whole scope of the book in, in three sentences. Those three principles apply to every believer in every time, every age, every culture, uh, every time and place. And now here in this last third of the letter of First Peter, Peter begins to respond to that third question, that most important thing for people who are going through difficult times, for people who are going through opposition. The question is this, how should a follower of Jesus respond How are we supposed to act when someone attacks us and we don't deserve it? How are we supposed to show grace in the middle of difficulties and and struggles? How how are we supposed to uh, think of it when when somebody is trying to shut us down or or shut us up? What, what What is God's expectation? How are we supposed to react? So I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell here this morning, uh, right off the get-go, right off the hopper, and uh, then we'll unpack it together. So I sometimes do this, just my sermon in a sentence, and today it's two sentences, so forgive me. But here it is for you. Through Jesus, God has restrained all the powers of evil. Therefore, I can face all opposition fearlessly, intentionally, sacrificially, victoriously, and righteously. Now that's a lot to digest, so we're going to open up in a word of prayer and then we're just going to look at God's word together. Father, we imagine Peter, the apostle, the one on whom uh, his confession built your church. We, we think of that, that crazy guy stepping out of the boat into the storm. We think of, of the guy that pulled out his sword to cut off the ear of Malchus. We think of We think of the man that tradition says was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die the same way Jesus did. And we're thankful for his words, but we know that these words are not just Peter's words. They are your words. Speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Peter, chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Now it says, who's going to want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what's right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry. Don't be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. 
And if someone asks you about the hope that you have as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Now, do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. And then if people do speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Jesus. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring us safely home to God. He suffered a physical death, but he was raised to life again in the spirit. So he went and he preached to the spirits in prison to those who disobeyed God long ago while God was waiting patiently as Noah was building his boat. Only eight people got saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your physical body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated at the place of highest honor next to God and all the angels and all the authorities and all the powers accept his authority. The word of the Lord. Now, let's be honest here, okay? This is a safe place. We can, we can be uh, honest. We can tell the truth. We don't like opposition, do we? Like, I don't, I don't like it. I don't, I don't like when I say something and my, my wife thinks that the opposite and, and, and corrects me. I, I don't like opposition uh, when, when my son is up in the morning and, and he doesn't want to have breakfast. And I'm like, you need to have breakfast because it's good for you. I don't like opposition. If it were up to us, most of us would just get along with everybody, right? Never say or do anything that would irritate or offend. We would just try to get along with everyone. Never wake up the woke mob and the cancel culture, right? We don't want to do that. Just stay quiet and under the radar, right? Undercover Christians. That's, that's what we want to be. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be the first one to get over, climb over the gunnels and out, out into the storm. No, let someone else do that. We're going to just stay quiet. We would love to just be able to, to gather quietly and, and worship God and, and make a few disciples, maybe with our family and a couple of friends, and, and just be left alone, right? That, that's how most of us feel. But here's the thing. God has not given us that option. If your faith is worth living, it's worth living out loud. We don't have the option not to make waves because if you're going to live a genuine faith, then it's going to offend someone. People don't like the truth. People like living in the darkness. They don't like the light. Remember Jesus? I mean, give me a break, right? Like that guy, he kind of went against the flow, didn't he? Like he did not give in to get along. He told it like it was. He didn't exactly go with the flow. He's always upsetting the apple cart, always questioning the status quo, always questioning those in powerful positions, running to those who call his name. <laughs> Nobody knew his secret ambition was to give his life away. And then he says this to you and I and to his followers who are gathered to listen to him. The Last Supper, Jesus says something like this in John 15. He says, hey guys, <laughs> guess what? The world's going to hate you. 
the world is going to hate you. But just remember this, the world hated me first, okay? So it's actually proof that you aren't like the world. So-called Christians who are just like the world, they never get persecuted by the world. You're not like that. You're like me, a servant just like the master, and they persecute me. So guess what? They're going to persecute you. Don't expect it to make sense but do expect it. If you're going to follow me, if you're really going to follow me, you're going to face persecution. So Jesus and Peter agree on that, that idea. And it's kind of weird to think that here we are 2,000 years later in a different time, different place, different culture. Like, and those two guys back then, these two upstanding, fine young men of faith, amazing people, agreed on one thing. They looked down through the passage of history and they saw you sitting at home and saw you sitting in your pew and they said, guess what? <laughs> if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to get persecuted. And so here's the advice that Peter has for you in the face of that reality. First of all, face your persecution fearlessly. Peter says, don't worry don't be afraid of their threats. The fact is that being a Christian is a slap in the face to the way that the world thinks and acts. And sometimes they feel obligated to try and silence the Christian. We don't think the way that they do. And so they want to silence us. Jesus never even sinned. And yet they crucified him. Martin Luther Jr., led peaceful protest after peaceful protest, they threw him in jail and someone assassinated him. John Wycliffe simply wanted this book to be in the hands of every person, that every person should have access to the Bible. And, and they burned him at the stake for that. You've probably heard the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, right? Here it is for your listening pleasure. Listen to what Jesus says here. Like, really listen. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Be happy about that. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were also persecuted in the same way. The ancient prophets were also persecuted in the same way. If you want to do a little bit of homework this week, why don't you just write down Isaiah chapter 8. Just write it down, and you want to take some time this week to find some place in the sun. What a gorgeous day, a morning out, outside with coffee in your Bible. Isaiah 8. Just, just meditate on Isaiah 8. Let it, let it sink into the, to the heart of who you are. Let it sink into your soul, Isaiah chapter 8, because it says something very similar. See, here's the way I look at it. You can either fear God or you can be afraid of everything else. Those are your options. 
The book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I, I think about that, and, and I think about th- this, this is the option that God gives us. We can either learn what it is to fear him, or we can live in fear of everything else. And if you learn what it is to fear the Lord, you never need to be afraid of anything else. It's so much simpler to just be afraid of one thing rather than everything, right? I mean, yeah. And because your fear of God finds itself being rooted and grounded in God's amazing love for you, you even find that as you start to fear the Lord, as you live in that reverent awe of who he is, you also understand that he loves you and that his perfect love covers over a multitude of sins. Face your persecution fearlessly. Now, how do you do that? Well, you certainly don't do it by running away from it, right? You don't do it by caving into it. You do it by standing up to it. And how do you stand up to your fear of persecution? How do you stand up when the world is threatening arrests or fines, or other penalties, you place your trust in something that is far, far greater than the systems and governments and powers of this world. First Peter tells us, don't be afraid of your enemy's threats. Instead, set apart Christ as Lord. Instead, revere Christ. Instead, think about Jesus. Put him first and only be concerned about what Jesus thinks about you. One of the things that Christians who've gone through persecution share with those of us who really haven't is this. Whenever you're faced with the threat of persecution, just take a moment and ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? I mean, seriously, worst case scenario. See, uh, probably the worst thing that could happen is you might be killed or tortured because of your faith, and that's not very cool, But it's never the last word. Christ is the last word, and Christ is far greater than all of your fears. Christ is far greater than all of your persecutors. Christ is far greater than any torture that any human being can devise. Christ is the only one who's truly Lord of heaven and earth, and because of our complete and total trust in him, we can face our persecution without fear. Don't worry. Don't be afraid of their threats. The second instruction that Peter gives to us here in 1 Peter is this. Face your persecution intentionally. If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, be ready. Always be ready to explain it. It completely boggles my mind that so many Christians, when you ask them, well, what do you believe? What's the heart of what you believe? They, they can't explain it in, in words. They don't even know how to explain the fundamental truths of their own faith. I'm not going to be negative here, though, and, and try and make you feel guilty about that, that whenever someone asks you about what you believe, your go-to response is, um, I'm not going to worry about that, but I want to tell you that you need to have a plan. You need to have a plan because you need to face your persecution intentionally. Now, in my own life, I've kind of formulated a response to people that's based on my sense of, of where they're at and what, what is, what's lying behind whatever it is that they're saying or doing against me. It's actually two different responses that I have, and I, I call them persecution light and persecution heavy. Now, persecution light, <laughs> it happens to us 
A lot. It happens all the time. In fact, it, it can be so common that some of us actually try and make it look like persecution heavy so that we can say we've gone through persecution heavy when we really haven't. Persecution light. Persecution light is, is just the average non-Christian who asks us about our faith or who maybe makes a joke about what we believe in, or who maybe makes a, a disparaging comment, often in the workroom, in front of everybody else, right? But that's, that's light. They, they really aren't out to destroy you. They just kind of think you're a little bit of a kook because you believe in this magic guy that died and rose from the dead again. They think you believe in fairy tales. And, and, and so you want to handle those kind of objections, those kind of attacks, those kind of whatever they are, persecution light. You want to handle them with, with kid gloves. And I, I find there's a threefold approach to persecution light. First of all, you need to have a fundamental understanding of the basics of the gospel. What is it that I believe? And I can, I can kind of just narrow this down for you in, into three, three essential questions. I mean, we're not talking about the extra stuff in the Bible, okay? There's all sorts of complicated theologies. Did Moses write the entire Pentateuch, including the part where he dies? I, you know, um, didn't did, did Noah build an ark, and what did that look like? Uh, um, and we can, we can have discussions about what, what the Bible means when it tells us that story. Or what kind of a fish was it that swallowed Jonah? I mean, I lay awake at night sometimes wondering about that, but those are often just red herrings. No, it wasn't a red herring that swallowed Jonah. Don't take that from your pastor. But what it is, is you need to be under, able to understand and be able to explain who Jesus was, what he did, and why it matters. That's it. That is the heart of what we believe. Who Jesus was, what he did, and why it matters. That's the heart of the gospel. I want to just invite you, just in your own brain right now, to take a moment and in one sentence each, answer those three questions. Just see if you can do it in, in your own thoughts. Who was Jesus? What did he do? Why does it matter? See, that's the heart of the gospel. If you're having difficulty with that little exercise, then it's probably the Holy Spirit just nudging you and saying, you need to prepare just a little bit better. You, you always need to be prepared. And you need to understand what it is that you believe, the heart of what it is that you believe. Now, the second part of persecution light is you kind of need to be ready to answer some of the most common objections that people who are not yet Christians will raise as they're kind of engaging in some of this. Can I, can I share something with you? Can, can I share something with you that you don't have to share with anyone else? Most non-Christians know about as much as Chris, about Christianity as you know about Zoroastrianism. Okay, like there's not a whole lot of people that have a doctorate in Zoroastrianism. No one's raising their hands, okay? That, that's what I've found in my own life is that most non-Christians don't even really have a full understanding of what Christianity is. And so what I find is when I start sharing the gospel with them or when they start to criticize or, or talk to me about, about something that I believe in, there's really about five objections 
that they raise. 95%, 90% of, of non-Christians will raise one or all of these five objections. That, that's it. It's not like 157 reasons to believe or 157 difficult answers to answer. There, there's five. And if you begin to intentionally share your faith on a regular basis, you're going to encounter those same five. Now, here's the thing. I'm not telling you what they are. Ha! I'm not going to tell you what those five things are. Because you know what? If God is speaking to you right now through this message, then, then you're going to be writing that down and you're going to be thinking to yourself, man, I need to be better prepared to give an answer for the hope that I have. You're going to go do a little bit of homework. That's what you're going to do. And if you're not really listening, and if you really don't care that much, you'll probably forget most of this sermon by about 12.45. So uh, that's your homework if you want it. Now, for persecution light, there's actually three parts. Be able to explain the basics of the gospel. Be able to answer the most common objections. And then the third thing, this is the hardest one. Be nice. <laughs> be nice. Just, just be kind. Do this with all gentleness and respect. If you're going to put yourself out there as a believer in Jesus Christ, please Please don't make a fool of yourself. Please don't put egg all over Jesus' face. Like he's banking on you. Don't, don't let him down. I remember when I was growing up, there was a guy in, in our church, and he was one of those people. And one time he bragged in a Bible study that he didn't even have any friends who weren't Christians. And I remember my dad looking at him and going, well, in your case, that's probably a good thing. Um, don't be that guy. Be nice. Be kind when people are asking you questions. Peter said, do this with gentleness and respect. And those are qualities that can sometimes be lacking in the zealous Christian who wants to win the argument. I've, I've been there. I've won the argument and lost the person. I've, I've done that. But you don't have to do that. When you share your faith, do it with gentleness and do it with respect. So that's persecution light. When persecution heavy, I think I've maybe encountered persecution heavy maybe two or three times in my entire life. Like we need to be in prayer for believers across the world who face this on a regular basis, but we simply don't. We don't. Persecution heavy is when you sense an implacable opposition, that, that that other person will not change their thoughts or change their mind, no matter what you say, no matter what you do. They want to make you look foolish. They want to bring cancel culture down on your head. They want to blast you so that you go away. They're perfectly okay if that means that you're dead. We don't encounter that a lot. But Peter talked about our response to this earlier in this letter. The church has encountered it a lot. We generally don't here in North America. But when you are facing persecution heavy, your best bet is to not fight back directly. It won't do any good. Just be steadfast in your own good behavior. Be, be, be un, unmovable in, in what you believe. But, but there's times, I mean, you look at Jesus, right? And there's times when people come to him and they ask him questions and we have whole dialogues because Jesus can see their heart and he understands that their questions are just persecution light. There's other times when Jesus is silent in the face of his accusers. 
like a sheep led before the shears, right? Isaiah? He doesn't say anything, and it frustrates some of those people. But that's, that's a pretty good response. Just keep living right, and whatever accusations they make against you will later be found out to be untrue. That's, that's the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in how you live, not necessarily in what you say in the moment. You might not win the day, but you will win the eternity. Whether you face persecution light or persecution heavy, one thing that the Bible is clear on is you need to have a plan. You need to have a plan. Now, as I was preparing and planning this sermon, uh, those first two points seemed to to really be important. Like God really wanted to kind of encourage you with those two thoughts. And, And so I let God give me some thoughts and ideas to try and underline those first two thoughts. But there's five thoughts in here all together. And for the next three thoughts, we kind of have the example of Jesus who's, who's, who's going to go before us and show us the way to handle persecution. He instructs us and he guides us because we see in his own response a template that we can follow. Jesus faces his own persecution sacrificially and victoriously and righteously. So face your persecution sacrificially. Christ suffered for our sins. He was willing to, 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 to face a punishment that he himself didn't earn. And this is so much harder than it looks. Being sacrificial, like, like we read earlier, right? To put the needs and the interests of other people ahead of your own. As I preach this message to you this morning, there's, there's a bunch of people in another part of this province who believe a whole bunch of things about me. They're, they're not true. They're, they're made up. My reputation as a pastor, my reputation as, as a man of God, my reputation as a husband was just shredded. And I'm, I'm learning to be okay with that. It's been a hard journey the last five or six years. I'm learning that if people want to believe lies about me, <laughs> there's not a lot that I can do about it anyways. So I'm trying to just focus on Jesus and just keep following him. And lately I've begun to realize that some of those people will never change their minds. That I will never be vindicated in this life. They will keep believing those lies about me until the day that they die. And that's okay. Because Jesus knows the truth. When I was a young man, I chose a theme verse for my life, a rhema, to, to quote the Greek, a, a verse that just kind of, I felt, wanted to be what I was aiming for, my, my own personal vision statement. And I chose Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, I want to know Christ. If I ever get a tattoo, and I'll probably never get a tattoo, it would probably be Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ, but that's not all that it says. Philippians 3.10 in its entirety actually says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, yes, and the fellowship of his suffering. Being conformed to his death 
if somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to him in his death. Jesus faces his own persecution sacrificially. He's willing to die. Am I? Are you? If you're going to really follow him, and you need to face your persecution sacrificially. Fourthly, it says, face your persecution victoriously. This is the good news on the other side of the grave, right? He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Oh, that's the part that gives me hope, right? One day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will look upon him whom they pierce. The mockers and the scoffers will one day see Jesus the way that I see him. Beautiful, magnificent, resurrected, and glorified. The Son of Man, the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. One day everyone will see that. And now Peter's point here is that for those of us who are believers, one day Christ is going to do that for us as well. Because of Jesus' suffering for us, God will vindicate us. In fact, he's already begun to do so right here and right now. Eternal life is not something that you experience by and by when you die, pie in the sky. It's something that you have right now. You are living your eternal life, hope and peace and victory and joy. God has already declared your persecution to be defeated and he will finally bring about a day when there will be this judgment seat of Christ and all will stand before it and everyone who accused you falsely, everyone who didn't live righteously, everyone who persecuted you will face the music for that. But here's the thing. I am slowly learning, slowly, that that's not what motivates me. I don't really care if at the judgment day of Christ, my enemies admit that I was right and they were wrong. I don't care about that. I want even my enemies to know the forgiveness of Christ in the here and now so that they can escape that awful, terrible, horrific judgment. I don't care what lies people might believe about me as long as they see Jesus, as long as they can be enlightened in him, as long as they can taste and see that the Lord is good, as long as they can experience that forgiveness that I've experienced. I want that even for the people who persecute me. I want them to know Jesus so that they too can face their lives victoriously. So face your persecution fearlessly. Face your persecution intentionally. Face your persecution sacrificially. Face your persecution victoriously. And then finally, face your persecution righteously. Do what's right. Christ has gone to heaven. He is now seated at a place of honor next to God. There's a couple of thorny theological questions in this passage right here. And I don't want to gloss over them. 
verse 19 and 20, is one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament to translate. There's all sorts of different people who interpret it differently. I tend to agree with how my New Living Translation translates it, but I, I'm gracious towards people who, who disagree. What does it mean for, for Jesus to preach to the spirits in prison? Um, I deliberately decided not to spend a lot of time talking about that today because it is pretty much a theological sermon by itself, and it's not the kind of sermon that would keep most of you awake, okay? So, so I, I find the theological conundrums quite fascinating myself, and if you want to do some research on that, if you want to come and have coffee with me and we can talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, I love doing that, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. We're going to pass that, that phrase by. And, and then as Peter's thinking about Noah and, and and the flood and all of those good things, like a good Jewish boy, he starts thinking about water, and he starts thinking about baptism. And again, baptism, verse 21, he says that water, the water that flooded the earth, is a picture of baptism. So there's a whole thesis statement for your master's degree, okay? And again, baptism is a very complex theological doctrine. We're not even sure what kind of baptism Peter is referring to here. I kind of think it's a spiritual kind, but that's another issue. And so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that either, okay? What we do want to draw out in conclusion is Peter's main point, and it is this. Face your persecution righteously. Noah was a righteous man. That's the point. And even though the world mocked him as he worked on that ark for hundreds of years, he faced that persecution righteously. His family was saved because of his righteousness. His moral actions in the face of opposition is what won the day. Noah faced his persecution righteously. Baptism that physical act by which we enter water and and are immersed and raised again, it's a reminder to us of a spiritual baptism. When our belief in Jesus washes away our sins and makes us clean from the inside out, right? Makes us righteous in God's sight. Baptism. I, I remember when I was a little kid growing up in a northern BC town and my town was pretty dark. There's a lot of things that went on in my town that I felt like I needed to make a very clear decision about my faith before I became a teenager, that I wasn't going to get sucked into the, to the drinking and the drugs and the partying and, and live like all of my peers were. I, 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 I knew that I had to choose and that I was going to live different. I was going to live As a Christian, though none go with me, I still will follow. So when I was 11 years old, before I became a teenager, I got baptized. I publicly declared what had already happened to me spiritually. That I belonged to Jesus, that Jesus had forgiven my sins, and that I was living a new life in him. I wasn't living that old life. And yeah, yeah. Don't tell Matthew, he's sitting in the front row, he's one of my sons. But there were a few times in my teenage years when I messed up. When I I was tempted to go along with the crowd. When I was tempted to compromise my faith. When I wanted to give in to, to get along. When I wanted to do that. To give in to persecution light. To compromise my faith in Jesus. And 
my parents, bless their hearts, they would just look at me and say, you got baptized, didn't you? Be like, yeah. Then they would say, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? And is it possible that it's really just that simple? When you face persecution, you ask yourself, whose side am I on? And you follow Jesus. You face your persecution fearlessly. When you face persecution, you ask yourself, whose side am I on? And you follow Jesus. You face your persecution intentionally. When you face persecution, you ask yourself, whose side am I on? And you follow Jesus. You face your persecution sacrificially. When you face persecution, you ask yourself, whose side am I on? And you follow Jesus and you face that persecution victoriously. When you face persecution, you ask yourself, whose side am I on? And you follow Jesus. You face your persecution righteously. In this world, you will face opposition. You will. You will face hostility. You will face resistance. You will face persecution. And when you face that persecution, you have to ask yourself, whose side are you on? Because Satan does not have the last word. And your enemies do not have the last word. And persecution does not have the last word. Jesus does.